We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I got a note from Nora Ephron that day, the day that review ran, because one of the wonderful things about reporting the United States of Arugula is I interviewed Nora, and Nora wrote to me that day saying, I love your title, and I have a book coming out called I Feel Bad About My Neck, and we'll just see what he has to say about that. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. What a great conversation here with David Camp, a journalist of the highest order and author of one of my favorite books on food, The United States of Arugula, the sun-dried, cold-pressed, dark-roasted, extra-virgin story of the American food revolution. In this episode, we talk about the book's legacy some 15 years after its publication. We also find out about what David is working on, including a Broadway musical. It's so great catching up with David Camp, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. David Camp, welcome to This Is Taste. What's up? I'm so happy to be here, Matt. My, I'm, I've just met you just now. You've got the, you've got great shoes. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure because this is an audio medium <laughs> that our, our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear that. They're going to be thrilled. But give us one line about your shoes because I really do think they're great shoes. Well, I have to preface it, but I, but I got <laughs> them on sale. Yeah, yeah couldn't of afford them. Others. They're Loro Piana cashmere shoes. They're like cashmere sneakers made of sweater material, and on a cold, wintry day which it happens to be, in case you're listening to this podcast in July yeah. while jogging in Miami Beach. Yeah. Um, it's a cold, wintry day, and they keep my feet warm. Yeah, they While look, looking great. They look great. You got the Jeremy Strong uh, vibe going on here. Quiet luxury, Quiet yes. Quiet luxury all the way. Yeah. Such a fan of your journalism. Such a fan. I've mentioned United States of Arugula, I think, about a dozen times on the show. And, um, Thank it, you. No, real, 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 real one. I mean, I, I want to talk about the book and like get into how you wrote it, you know, your thoughts on it, you know, decades later. And, but I first want to just get a sense of where are you eating out right now in New York? What's good? Well, this time of year again, um, sorry to that Miami jogger again, it's a cold winter's day in New York City. Um, my favorite restaurant kind of in general, but especially this time of year is Il Posto Acanto, which is this funky little Italian restaurant in the East Village Avenue, I'm sorry, Second Street between Avenues A and B. Mm. And um, it's run by this couple. The chef is a Roman woman named Beatrice. And the front of house is run by her husband, Julio, who is uh, Afro-Dominican from Washington Heights. So the pairing of them alone is kind of wacky and fun. Yeah. But then it's just incredibly good Roman food. You know, you can get a small bowl of pasta, a Roman-sized portion, and then a meat course, and then just fortify yourself with really good wine. And yeah, Il Posto Acanto. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I remember back in that part of the hood, Il Bogato used to be there. Used to be like it's the same people. Oh, shout out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They used to run them contiguously, Il Bogato and Il Posto oh. Acanto. But for landlord reasons, classic New York story, they had to merge them into one entity. So this is the same people. Such a great... Thank you. I was like, I knew Il Bogato was around there. I used to live yeah. on 7th Street. I love... I love that that rack. Are, are you in the neighborhood? Are you an East Village guy? I'm I'm in the West Village, yeah. but that's not far. Not far walk. Okay. Well, that's a good that's a good rack. Um, okay. United States of Arugula. Just first for our listeners, just what was your ambition and your aim when you wrote the book? To tell the story of the arc of how food in America has changed over the 20th and early 21st century, and it came from a very personal angle when I pitched this book. This was 20 years ago. I was in my 30s. I'm now in my 50s. and But even in that span of my life, I'd witnessed so much change. I mean, Matt, you're a younger guy, but I can't stress how, like, when I was a kid, I can remember that. I mean, just think of, listener, your daily routine. You go to a Starbucks for this good quality dark roasted coffee, and then you might get sushi for lunch or even pick up grab-and-go sushi from the supermarket, and you might have homemade salsa with your with your dinner at night or some or, or store-bought salsa. The point is, it sounds so remarkable, but when I was a kid, coffee was still something you bought chock full of nuts in a tin, uh, an aluminum can that, that your mom made in a percolator on the stove. And uh, that was ground like probably, you know, 
12 months ago yeah or, 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 or years ago. years or 12 years ago yeah 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 it's and and so and and the idea and and sushi forget it i mean it was it was so unheard of my mom was a research scientist for johnson and johnson mm. and when i was about 11 she had to fly to palo alto california for a conference i'm from new jersey and she came back and told my sister brother and me kids do you know what i ate in california what mom raw fish we all yeah. Had, Ew! Yeah. and of course now it's like second nature that my children and everyone else's children all of us are used to sushi as like yeah. a staple of everyday eating and then and then like salsa i can tell the same story that uh i went to a family wedding when i was a teenager and i had these cool surfer cousins from san diego come east for the wedding and they were kind of like complaining and one of them said Dude, you people need to learn about salsa. <laughs> and my, but and my answer was, what's salsa? Amazing. And I wasn't yeah. five; I was seventeen. Yeah. So those are all profound changes, and I don't think people had no one had stepped back as an author and looked at how all this happened, and not just this. Just like it's about cooking, it's about cookbooks, it's how we shop, how markets yeah. work, how the celebrity chef thing was beginning to happen in that period, like early two thousands. Yeah, it was. It's it's remarkable how quickly of a sea change it was and you talk about Dean and DeLuca and we'll get into that you talk about products like balsamic vinegar becoming lexicon you talk about Alice Waters but I want to get a sense of just the publishing history was it a tough one to sell not at the time because um you know I was in this very building and it was a, a division of uh Doubleday called Broadway Books all under the crown mantle yeah. now yeah no because I think that it was it was enthusiastically received because, to the editor's credit, they saw that we were in this inflection point moment. And there was one guy here, Steve Rubin, who uh, just passed away, yeah. and he was at Henry Holt later on, who was a self-described foodie. And he was sort of a high-ranking executive who said, yes, yes, this is the time to do this book. I love it. And it, it really did explode under the scene. Um, and it changed the way, I think many journalists, like myself, younger at the time, journalists appreciated the history that maybe we didn't know about. And and I'm so thrilled to hear that because I wrote this book because I thought it already existed and was shocked that it didn't. Yeah. So I yeah. thought, well, someone better write it. Might as well be me. And you, you know, by, by trade, you know, you're an editor at GQ. You, you and wrote, Vanity Fair. And Vanity books. Fair. And you, so you were not like a food writer. You were a, a, a general journalist writing some really interesting profiles and, and work at Condé Nast. And you dipped into the food world, but it was beyond dipping in. How, how, what was the reporting of the book like? It was really um, thorough yeah. and arduous. It took a long time. But I loved it because, and this is another difference between then and now, food people were really, chefs, um, farmers, restaurateurs, were really unused to being interviewed about their lives beyond the kitchen. Like, what motivated you? Yeah. Um, what's your life journey? Now those are common questions to ask someone in the food world. But back then, they were so welcoming because they were like, yes, I'm so, I have a story to tell. I remember seeing Judy Rogers at Zuni Cafe and sitting down with her, you know, during the day when they were prepping for the lunch shift. And she, she was like so happy to tell her life story and to sketch out the full, you know, yeah, you know, blow by blow of how she, a girl in St. Louis you know, came to be this acclaimed chef and in and, and 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 create such a, an idiosyncratic restaurant in in San Francisco. We just wrote a big piece about that book cookbook, actually. Oh, about the Zuni, the Zuni. yeah, it was a cookbook. It's an awesome cookbook. It's such. It's like one. I can. We call it canon now. I mean, it's like one of the best <laughs> books. It is. But um, you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned how these these folks hadn't uh, weren't used to being interviewed, and I have a similar uh, sense when I started writing about food in the early two thousands. Um, I had come from the music and in television and film world, and like those guys are all media trained, and it was quite boring. But agree with you when you're interviewing a chef for the first time or their first time. You know, they're like shocked, right? That you're you're talking to them. Was there an interview that you felt like that you had a real breakthrough moment for the book that just comes to mind right away? Well, Judy does because she got what I was trying to do. Like a lot of people are like, what's the gist of the book? It's food as culture. And that's <laughs> sort of what I was saying. Like right. food is not just something we eat. It's not just for cookbooks. It's a part of our culture that deserves as thorough an examination in nonfiction narrative form as a sports book does, or a book about the movies, or a book about ballet, or a book about literature. And she was the first one to 100% see eye to eye with me. She says, 
I know what you mean. Like, for example, when Paul Bocuse was on the cover of Newsweek in 1976, and then she went back to her office and had that issue, which she loaned to me because that was valuable research. Like these, she was talking about inflection points in her life yeah. that where she saw the, that food was, you know, leaking from the recipe page onto the front page. Yeah, that's a very know? famous article is about the French Nouvelle movement. I think yes. Roy Sokolov wrote it. For Time Magazine, well, I believe. aren't we knowledgeable, Matt? Well, I'm not trying to name rock. I got <laughs> no. To, I'm impressed. I got to interview Roy back maybe 15 years ago. Wow! And I, I definitely is it? It's Roy. It's Ray. Ray. I'm sorry. Ray. I totally yeah. messed up the name. I knew I did right away. Ray. I, I got to get Ray in that studio. He's an interesting guy. Anyways, let's talk about being a little early. This book I felt was before its time. I hope that you take that as a compliment. I mean, we've got. You know, these like, Julia Child all day. It's been covered forever in James Beard book, Jeremiah Tower documentary, The Shapenese Family Tree. You know, there's dozens of people who have cookbooks in our celebrities. You're writing about all of them, and they're not celebrities in the moment. It's just an interesting. Do you feel you were a little early with United States of Arugula? Absolutely, because it came out in 2006 in the paperback in 2007. It got great reviews, and it did really well. So I'm forever grateful for yeah. that. That's all good. That said, it it was a little ahead of the curve in terms of like food kind of and also the mainstreaming of good food and that mediaization of of good food yeah. really changed in the years to follow. Like I remember talking to Tom Colicchio, you know, who's now this top chef star, and he was feeling guilty about even expanding craft from like one restaurant hmm. to three. Yeah. And and look at him now. I mean, yeah. and, and and Padma and all I, I knew these people then. Yeah. And Danny Meyer, too, they're all talking about, I don't know, like, should I just have one restaurant? And then, boom, that's all yeah. uh, That's all immaterial <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, yeah. when uh, you know, a, a few years later. So you're absolutely right that I think that I was writing about something that was coalescing into a juggernaut, but it wasn't yet a juggernaut. I mean, but even though you were early, and I'm, I'm glad you said it was commercially successful, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, um, there's something about being there first and being there early that you can never repeat. I mean, do you feel like these these stories that they tell told you then maybe have changed over history, like revisionist history almost? Well, yeah. I mean, I like I said, I have no regrets because it was virgin territory. Yeah. Meaning, meaning, first of all, there were no publicists. You could exactly. Just, you could just call people. That's you, what. No, I would just call the main line of the restaurant and say, "May I speak to the chef, please?" And they'd put the chef on and say, "I'm David Camp, and I'm doing this book about food history. Yeah. Can I come by?" And the answer was almost always yes. Yeah. And and of course, and then they fed me as well, and so it was really yeah. convivial. So that was great. And the other thing is getting people at that time when they were still young and active enough to have full memories, like. The Chez Panisse scene, a lot of the people who I interviewed for the book have only in the last two years died. Yeah. And so I got them 20 years ago when their memories were still relatively fresh and they were able-bodied enough to like show me physically how they prepared things. And so that's important too. And that's like a, a bit of advice I would say to anyone who's a journalist about writing a, a book is that if someone says, I'm available for an interview, hop on the next plane, train, or or, or whatever to meet that person because you've got to seize the moment because I've had that. Ha Julia Child agreed to be interviewed for the book, but then passed away yeah. before I could get to California. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, rough. Yeah. But let's go back to Chez Panisse because I think, um, and, and Alice Waters wrote a bit about it in her memoir, but I think your scenes in your book paint this really vivid picture about a group of people. They weren't just hippies. They were like living um, a life of, they were, it was like art and, 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 and uh, farming coming together. Yeah. In this very unique way, paint that picture for us. Well, it's the '60s. Yeah. It's it is a hippie era, and it's a counterculture. Counterculture is almost more important than hippie. Better meaning there was yeah. there was a lot of like rebellion against their parents' generation yeah. of norms and behaviors. And actually, another way my book was early is that I got a lot of flack for talking about people's sex lives yeah. and sexual preferences because that seemed at the time, 2006 to be a violation of the etiquette of how you talk about food people, as if their sexuality um, had no bearing on who they were as people right. um, and, and, and how they fell into the food world. And so Chez Panisse was very, Alice Waters talked about this. It was very much sexual liberation played into her approach to the, the, the sensuality of food and who could do what task, meaning that you didn't gender 
who was a front of the house person and who was a chef and who was a sous chef, how that was all those those roles were, um, you know, redefined. Yeah. And her relation with Jeremiah Tower, which I think is is a rich text. Yeah. Could be a, 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 a real uh, its own film. I feel right. its own scenes. Right. Yeah. But, but I mean, it. You know, so so much of it, and it came out of protest. Students for a democratic society were on the Berkeley campus in California, and a lot of the Shea East people were Berkeley people, yeah. and indeed the restaurant is in Berkeley. So it was a lot of this folding of idealism, rebellion, um, kind of back to the land ethos, which is partly absorbing French culinary yeah. tradition, which is much more. We take from the we take fish from the river, and we yeah. we take uh, grains and 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 vegetables from the ground. But radical in a restaurant setting, particularly in the sixties and seventies. I mean, think about putting like the farmer's name on a menu. Yeah, Shea was probably one of the first in the country to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Laura Chanel's goat cheese. Yeah. Like that was a bit. First of all, goat cheese by itself yeah. was another thing that most Americans were not eating. It was only a European thing. It's sort of like my mom talking about raw fish. If you said to the average American, this cheese is made from the milk of a goat, people would go, ew. <laughs> but Laura Chanel was making really good fresh chev in Sonoma County. That's another important factor that Berkeley was near Napa and Sonoma, yeah. which is this, you know, profusion of wonderful produce and oh cheese goodness. and wine. So that helped location. It's like been sprinkled with fairy dust Yeah, yeah. if you go there at the right time of year. I mean, it is incredible. So the stars were aligned geographically and uh, ideologically and just in terms of the people for all this to coalesce into Chez Panisse. A big uh, part of the book, too, about United States Arugula is the way California and France had this sharing of ideas, mostly Californian chefs and farmers t- taking extracting technique from from France. And, you know, that really founded this new American cuisine, which you're right about. And I'd love to get your sense of, of how that, how did that transfer of energy work? Because there was a time when California didn't have viticulture, didn't have, you know, these, these techniques of cheese making that are common in Normandy. How did that happen? Well, I think it starts during and post-World War II when you had a lot of, a lot of, um, GIs like stayed over after the war yeah. ended just to eat some French food or even like during the celebrations, French, the French, this really happened, would feed, would feed the GIs and they developed a taste for French food. Oh, this is, this stuff is good. And then post-war prosperity, suddenly people have disposable income and and there's now um, airplane travel that becomes affordable mm-hmm. to the middle class, not just the super rich. And so you could travel to places like France and Italy and Spain, and but especially France. And then it so it starts to be people borrowing from French cuisine, aspirational. But then as far as the hippie mm-hmm. counterculture Chez Panisse thing, it's the idea of American food had been moving towards convenience and fast food in the mid-century. And commodity. And it commodity. Would, yeah. And and so you had factory farming. You know, we were all moving towards one big burger. You know, yeah. like, I mean, the whole, the fast food chain thing started in the 50s. I mean, the 50s was a real, just the, 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 the you know, the dip in our culture, in our food culture. Right, right. And even in my early childhood, my mom was a really good cook, but kind of almost at the kids urging, we wanted those things. We wanted hamburger helper. We we wanted rice because they were advertised on TV as yeah. these convenience foods um, uh, until we realized that they were crap compared yeah. to what we could really have. But and but that thing, that, that realization is thanks in large part to visionaries like the people on the California scene, who basically what they did was they appropriated the idea, the French idea of using what's fresh and using what your locale gives you, whether it's um, coastal and it's from the sea or whether it's farms or, or, you know, whatever, and using that. And so California cuisine in a lot of ways was a mimicry of French methods, but using indigenous ingredients. Really, really well said. And then let's pop south to Los Angeles because that is also part of your your narrative and what's happening with Michael McCarthy in, in that world. But give a sense of like how LA, maybe a, a decade later, became a, a different type of f- progressive food movement. Well, it's it's similar actually. It's actually the same. A lot of the same people, like a lot of Shea Panisse people, migrated south, like Jonathan Waxman, who is now here in New York. But what they did was they took it even further away from France. You know, all, the the Chez Panisse and Bay Area scene still was kind of quasi French food, yeah. and 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 the idea of Waxman and Michael McCarty, who opened the original Michaels in Santa Monica, was 
we don't even have to aspire to be French. We can just make solid, you know, roast chicken that's a native roast chicken to this area and, and we'll use the best ingredients and the best razor clams and scallops and what have you and, and just prepare them in an unpretentious way. You know, it's radical if you think about, you know, our food culture now and younger listeners might be like, well, this is like everywhere. You go to, you know, uh, Topeka and there's like five places that do incredible farm to table cooking. But back then in the 70s, it's like not everywhere. It's remarkable. I can't stress this enough like that. I could remember when things happened. I can remember when balsamic vinegar happened. Yeah. Meaning one day it existed, it didn't exist, and the next day it did. I remember when Tuscany happened. I'd never heard yeah. of Tuscany until I was 20. My yeah. image of Italians and Italian food was Sicilian. Of course. I didn't know it at the time, but I knew it was Southern Italian. It was red sauce and manja, manja, all that stuff. I did not realize that there were like 18 other regions of Italy with uh, their own distinct cuisines. Yeah, and it's a great segue when you talk about balsamic vinegar to the story of Dean and DeLuca, and I, and that sticks with me. The, the, you're reporting around the founding of this of this influential store and how um, the buying there really did shape um, this new movement of, of food retail. And we talk about food retail all the time on this show, and I think our listeners may appreciate how you would you dove into Dean and DeLuca about how they brought these products to not the masses, but to a very specific style of, of of consumer. You know, it's downtown New York City. It's a certain level of wealth, but still a very influential part. I want to hear about that reporting, but also, um, man, what a fucking sad story about Dean DeLuca, the way it died. Yeah, because, well, you know, the, the Joel Dean and Giorgio DeLuca and their third partner, Jack Chiglick, sold the business and then it passed through several pairs of hands. And, and it just, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. I mean, they deserve their payday, but you kind of wish that whoever inherits that legacy honors it. But we've seen time and again, that's not usually how it turns out. In fact, I know um, the guy who founded or the guy who owned Murray's Cheese, Rob Kaufelt, mm -hmm. and he sold it to, I think, the Kroger supermarket chain. And, and so far, it seems to be doing well. Like I see it in supermarkets, yeah. a little kiosk, and they're kind of honoring the, the ethos of, of Murray's Cheese. But it doesn't always work that way. And Dean DeLuca is one of those examples where it just went down the tubes. So, uh, and Rob, get that guy talking. Wow, I got to get that guy on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, can, he's really cool. But like, let's talk yeah. about the, the founding of Dean DeLuca and what that meant. And what, what was it like to bring, you know, it, it wasn't just products from Emilia Romagna, but it's products from all over Europe and all over Asia to a store. Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Europe and Asia, because here's the thing, is that the story, I alluded to it earlier, of American cuisine in the mid-century was assimilation, meaning we were, we were burgers were the ideal, you know, the, the cookout, barbecue, that was the ideal. And Giorgio DeLuca was a guy whose dad worked, before the World Trade Center existed, there was a Washington market, Washington Street, uh, on the lower west side of Manhattan, where, where vendors would yeah. buy and sell fruits and, and, and goods imported from other countries. Giorgio De Luca's father is a, an Italian foods vendor, and he grew up ashamed of bringing his Italian, his soprasada and radicchio to school because it was seen as weird or stinky. And, and, and same with uh, Asian people that I had interviewed. They said, like, I would bring my fermented kimchi to school and, and people would wrinkle their noses. Yeah. So I was, like, shamed into bringing peanut butter and jelly. Nothing wrong with peanut butter and jelly. Mm. But there was this big thing of, you know, it, it's, it's gross and not yeah. American enough. Yeah. Georgia DeLuca had this realization that this stuff was good thanks to Joel Dean. Giorgio DeLuca, when he's a young man, he's living in this, like, lower flat in a brownstone. The upper flat is occupied by a gay couple, and that's Joel Dean and Jack Chiglick, who are both American. And Joel, they were just that cultured gay couple, mm -hmm. mentor couple that every young person who comes to New York dreams about. Yeah. And Giorgio DeLuca, even though he's a New York City native, he, he realizes that they're saying, no, that stuff that you're raised with is awesome. And we think that there should be you know, a shop. And Jack Chiglick is the guy who had the design eye and created that sort of very spare, just, you know, aluminum rods oh and, and bare white walls. That merch is like worth so much money. And also he stepped aside and allowed alliteration to, to happen. In, in the name title. of alliteration, because Dean DeLuca and Chiglick or, no. or Chiglick Dean DeLuca wouldn't have worked. Nope. So he said, I will step back and Joel's my partner and my love. Guys, you can have the names on the business as long as I'm a full partner. It's really, really cool story. But the point is that they became adept through design and just like reframing things that yeah. no, these foods from Italy and Asia 
are awesome. And Giorgio was the front man who would be sales evangelist, mm -hmm. who would stand there in the original store on Prince Street and hustle his wares as samples to passersby. And this is when Soho was not the Prince Soho. and Broadway. I mean, it's like such an iconic like corner and it's not that now no but this is even before that there used to be a, a one where the apple store is now oh, no it's, it's actually that's spring it's, street it's no it's it was prince oh prince you're but right it, it was prince but it wasn't it was wasn't the apple store block it might have been one west i got it the point being it was on prince it was the original one was on prince street on the north side and it was smaller but it was so beautiful and so sensual when you walked in if you went one direction it smelled of fresh coffee which was again not a common thing no. then. And in another direction, you would smell these cheeses that you'd never smelled in an A&P supermarket, you know? Do you get a sense of how the buying worked? Because I know you wrote about it in the book, but maybe there's like the way that, you know, Dean DeLuca was able to import products. It was not, there was no, you know, internet, obviously. And it was, it had to be done in a very different way, I'm sure. It was very face-to-face -face retail. And in fact, balsamic vinegar, I mean, you can't say that one person made it happen, but Giorgio De Luca is as responsible as anyone. And he told me about how he went to Modena looking for something else. And then some include him. And you should talk to this guy about his vinegars. And he said it was a rainy night. He had to drive up to the top of a hill in bad weather. And some guy, some guy he meets in this house sprinkles out of some, you know, amphora or something like some ancient a battery, right? Like yeah. one of the batteries, right? Yeah, like yeah. One Some, of those cool batteries, yeah. Yeah, a ancient balsamic vinegar that's been aging for years yeah. and is syrupy, not like the kind of like generic kind you buy in a store. And his mind was blown by it. And by the way, this wasn't something that's used in Italy the way it is in America. But in a way, that's kind of not a bad thing. That So it got popularized as a gourmet upmarket expensive item at Dean and Luca. Yeah. But I think an interesting thing about America is how so how something like that, which wasn't even in common use in Italy, became in America repurposed for other uses. That's not always a bad thing. No, absolutely happens. not. I mean, there, you know, it's used, uh, you know, in hard cheeses and maybe before the course. Now we've got like balsamic chicken, which is like marinated with balsamic. Right. No, they, I mean, they use it to anoint things like like a bolito misto or right, something. Right, bolito misto like, is like a good a, one. Like yep. a tiny bit of olive oil, yep. a tiny bit of balsamic vinegar. United States for arugula, I say that name a lot. Ayo, Scott, I'm just going to pick, I have a bone to pick. You called it a horrendously <laughs> titled new book in, in a very positive review. Fucking wrong. That, that is a great title. What do you think about the title? Now we've got 20 years between it. I still think it's great. I mean, Good. I, 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 Good. I, I like my title. Um, Good. And by the way, Tony Scott, as he has known. Yet. To friends, be, no, he yeah, he's he's not my friend, but he's <laughs> a, but he's a guy I respect as a writer, and and I'm Me grateful too. to him for his review because it was a really positive review. That said, a lot of people picked up on him calling it horrendously titled, and I got a note from Nora Ephron that day, the day that review ran, because one of the wonderful things about reporting the United States of Arugula is I interviewed Nora. She was one of my first interviews, and out of that interview came a friendship that endured right till she died. And Nora wrote to me that day saying, I love your title. And I have a book coming out called I Feel Bad About My Neck. And we'll just see what he has to say about that. Oh my God. And and that book became a huge bestseller. And so we we kind of commiserated over like, look, we both chose weird wordy titles and 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 we 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 prevailed. Have you ever thought about a documentary project to tie to this to this book? Yeah. Yeah. Um it again, I was ahead of the curve. You were. Like like I was approached by some less then I mean, not some people who I wasn't that impressed with, you know, right after the book came out. Yeah. And I think it's actually a good time to revisit it as the basis for a documentary or a documentary series. I agree. We talked off mic, but I feel like if you were compelled, you have other projects. I want to get to that, too. But like you could write some kind of sequel to this book and it would be wonderful to get your take on how f the food movement has changed in the past the, 20 years. Thank you. At the very least, I'd like to do an updated edition. You know, yeah. um, like it would be good to sort of do one with two new chapters that cover some of the ground since um, since the book came out. Yeah. It's been 18 years. Okay, let me ask you then, uh, looking back, do you regret not covering anything, anyone, any, any people, any person in the book? Yeah, I would say what I wish I'd done more of is... Um, Near the end of the book, because of the era in which I was writing it, I got a little too caught up in the celebrity chef thing because it was so new and yeah. such a novelty. It was this is when Emeril Lagasse had a sitcom, and it was like, yeah. and, and I wish <laughs> I'd kept it more 
at what I call the the ground level, which means like more about the consumer experience yeah. and the grocery experience and the shopping experience, and and more about farmers because. I actually was on the Today Show to promote the book, and um, I was asked, what do you think is the next big thing? Inevitably, they asked you that. Yeah. And I said, I think we're going to learn more about the farmers. You heard, heard of celebrity chefs? We're going to have celebrity farmers. And everyone thought I was joking, and I wasn't. And it was kind of— Oh, my gosh. The guy from Nyman Ranch gets like you know $100 million for his— Right, for Bill Nyman. Uh, yeah. but, but, I mean, but I mean, the celebrity thing is less important than we became— we've since become yeah. way much more aware of who our farmers are, and young people are going into farmers. Farming. Yeah, they know it's a hard life, but they're doing it because they see dignity in it. It's a great book. I want to. I keep talk all day, but I don't want to get to other projects. Um, definitely, I'm gonna link to the show notes. It's still in print, right? Oh yes, yeah, it's still in print. How dare you? I mean, it's. I I I looked it up last <laughs> night. I, I, you, you can buy it on Kindle. You can buy it everywhere. So you should yeah. buy this book if you're a fan of uh, of food history. Uh, definitely pick it up. Let's talk about Ruth Rogers. You're working with her famous, famous, famous British chef and restaurateur. You're working on adapting her podcast into a book. What's it like working with Ruth? Um, she is the most wonderful person in the world, just to contextualize yeah. for your listeners. Ruthie, we call her Ruthie. Yeah, Ruthie is. Ruthie is actually American, but she married That's Richard. Right. Ro- she married Richard Rogers, the architect. 100% forget about that the, always. The guy who um, you know designed the Musée Pompidou in Paris, right, right, among right. other amazing buildings. And they've been, they were, he died two years ago. They'd been together almost 50 years. Yeah. She's an American who moved to London with him because he was from Brit- Britain. And with Rose Gray in the 80s, she opened this, originally it was a canteen for his architecture uh, practice, mm-hmm. but it sort of grew into like one of the most important restaurants in London, if not the world. And Ruthie has a podcast kind of like this one. It's just very convivial, um, easygoing, except her friends, because like Nora Ephron, she's a collector of people, of like amazing people. Yeah. And so when she has people on, it's like Michael Caine, Paul McCartney, yeah. uh, you know, like Lauren Michaels, Tina Fey. Yeah. Um, the list goes on. What is the draw to Ruthie then? I mean, I, I'm curious because I do re- realize and recognize her ability to bring some huge names. Is it the restaurant status in the UK or is it just her ability to be friends? It's a combination of those things. It's like the River Cafe is, It's I, I would say it's akin to the Union Square Cafe in New York City in that they both came up in the same time. Both Ruthie and Rose and Danny Meyer were non-Italians who revered Italian food. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to sort of bring their version of Italian food to the public and had huge success and expanded and expanded as a result. Um, Ruthie, like I said, Ruthie and Nora Ephron have in common that they have the bandwidth to maintain 10,000 close friendships, genuine friendships. Like I have maybe 40 friends who are truly close friends. And then I maybe have another 200 people who are acquaintances. They are unique, powerful, dynamic people who have 10,000 friends that are real friends. And also when, because of their dynamism, some of them are the most notable people in the world. Yeah. You know, great answer. We call those people fabulous. Fabulous. Exactly. And so this just briefly, uh, this is something I do. Sometimes I help well-known people, out with her books. And Ruthie just wanted to turn her podcast into a book of stories that well-known people tell about their food journeys. And it's not just, here's what I like to eat now as a rich person. It's no. like, I was born, Michael Caine, I was born in poverty in South London, um, or the director, Steve McQueen, uh, you know, t- 12 Years a Slave, saying, I was born in um, a West Indian community in West London, and we had no money, but my mom was a great cook, and she knew how to oh. make a great, you know, a great Jamaican, uh, you know, chicken uh, stew, chicken and, fi- and and stew fish. Oh my and, gosh! And so, so, the, and they have these stories about you know, really, really vivid, life affirming stories of their food journeys from infancy to the present. God, shout out to Steve McQueen. I love Small Acts of that that, that yeah. series on Amazon. Yeah, incredible. It's in cool. fact, and in fact, he said um, Small Acts is like a tribute to his childhood, and a lot yeah. of it is that is a, like two of the episodes of Small Acts are about food. So oh, they the, are. I know. I love the, yeah, the, the mangrove restaurant one. And there's an episode called lovers rock. Lovers they, rocks. My favorite. And they mine too. Wow. And they both have big food elements that come out of his really, really fond memories of the, the community he grew up in. So Ruthie is basically just like putting you on an email with these people. 
and you're getting to interview them or how's that like how's that work well it's mainly it's mainly working with ruthie yeah. on i mean we have transcripts but a bit of that too and a, a, cool. bit, of, a bit of like um can like can wes anderson clarify what he meant when he said <laughs> and then we go to wes and so forth that's really really exciting for you as a journalist to be able to like tap in with these people i'm sure you're learning a lot about you know these different ways people eat right anyway. and very few famous people, notable people came from wealthy backgrounds or privileged backgrounds. Yeah. So you hear a lot of really rich stories of humble origins and almost the more humble the origins, the better the stories about the food. You're an interesting guy, David. Thank you. You're just an interesting guy to talk to. <laughs> no, I mean that because you're a journalist, but you also, you're a lyricist, which means you write lyrics for Broadway plays, musicals, and you're working on... You, a, a show with uh, John Leguizamo called Kiss My Aztec. I mean, first off, what does a lyricist do? I, I'm so fascinated in this. Well, I actually, as a kid, always wanted to be, I wish that I was alive in that period, like the 30s and 40s, when lyricist was actually a job. Like George Gershwin had his brother Ira oh, yeah. write all the words to the songs. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it, there's so many, so many, like the guy, uh, Yip Harburg, he was the lyricist for the Wizard of Oz songs like and i yeah. love the, the internal rhymes like there's just a real cleverness it's it's not that far off from humor which i also write because you're basically trying to be really economical while having a greatest impact especially in a live show because in a live show unless it's hamilton and everyone already knows the soundtrack most people are hearing the song for the first time. So it's not like a radio song. If you're a lyricist for the stage, you have to write a song that's going to get across the very first time the, audi the audience hears it. And so you have to be very clear. You can't be garbled. You've got to be clever enough for the jokes to like register and get a laugh. And so, um, and when you called me a Broadway uh, composer or lyricist, excuse me. I I'm flattered, but we're not quite. Yes, yeah. my Aztec is coming to Broadway. That's it is yet said. to it is yet to open. It's coming to Broadway, meaning you're gonna like workshop off Broadway and then eventually upstream. We have, we have... we have already done out of town productions yeah. of it in um, La Jolla, Berkeley, and Hartford. La Jolla, that's a good one. Yeah, that's... La Jolla Playhouse. Now these are major pre Broadway theaters, so we've done it, and now it's just a matter of you know the usual. You're Jock there. Jockeying for position and financing, and, and, and we'll get there. Did like, you have some good fish tacos in San Diego? When you uh, of course I did. But here's the thing. It's, so speaking of West Indian food, when I was in Hartford, Hartford has a huge Caribbean community. I had the best Jamaican food outside of Jamaica I've had in my lifetime. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I love to hear that. I, I, I want to hear more about lyricism. And <laughs> lyricism? Is that what you call it? Lyricism? Lyri um. You could say there's a lyricism to my writing, and I'd be very flattered. But I think you just mean lyrics writing. Lyrics writing. So, yeah. are, is there a is there a food concept in your head that you're going to write? Well, is it the great food musical going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that I can't help it because I love food. Like my two main things that I love in life for pleasure are food and music, and you know, lyrics kind of combine the two because it inevitably happens, whether I'm conscious of it or not, that my lyrics are studded with food references. Yeah. And like there's one in Kiss My Aztec. Basically, the show is a revisionist history where the Aztecs outwit and triumph over the Spanish conquistadors rather than get eradicated by them. And in our show, the big villain is a mean Spanish viceroy named Rodrigo. And he sings this song where he's basically saying that, explaining why the Spanish are racially superior not just to the Aztecs, but to everyone else oh, in the geez. world. And one example he gives is we invented tapas. So I wrote this lyric like, some olives, croquetas, and batter fried squid. No country did tapas till we Spanish did. And so that's just one couplet that flies by. But here's the thing. The choreographer decided to have a tapas waitress pirouette in, and this is a trained dancer, bearing a tray of paper mache tapas. So you actually have, made by our property master, this beautifully rendered <laughs> olives, croquetas, and batter fried squid being danced with on a, you know, fix, affixed to a tray by this like trained ballet dancer. It's... And it's surreal that like something I wrote, some stupid joke I wrote on a whim becomes a prop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's now like danced and twirled. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you and... see the new Sweeney Todd? Yes, I did. Yeah, yes. I know Shelley and I both have seen as well. What I mean, is Sondheim, is he like on the podium? Is he like the number one? Is he on Rushmore? 
for you? Of course. Well, I mean, for me, I, I, I like the older, the, the pre-Sondheim guys the most. Yeah. Like I said, the Gershwins and Harold Arlen, Johnny Mercer. Your Cole humor Porter. kind of feels that it's in that level a little bit more. Antiquated, yes. Well, I get what you're saying. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, that came off. No, 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 no. I, I it, appreciate it. It was genre. You're, you're, you're writing a genre, maybe? Well, wow, I, that, I, I'm no, really I, digging myself no, a hole No, no, here. no, 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 not at all. I, I mean, no, I would say that um, I, I fantasized about having been a lyricist in the 30s and 40s. And yeah. the, the, I won't ramble on further about this, except to say John Leguizamo has been a friend for a long time. And I said this to him one day long before Kiss My Aztec existed. I said, you know, I'm a print writer, but I really wish that I could have been one of those, you know, Ira Gershwin style lyricists in the 1930s. And then John, like 10 years later, said, remember that conversation we had? Well, I've got a show. I've written a play that seems like it wants to become a musical. <laughs> and you said you wanted to be a lyricist. Do you want to be the lyricist? Oh, that's So amazing. that's how that started. So amazing. Yeah. And so when are we expecting it on uh, in theaters in New York? Um, in a theater, because it's, it's a Oh, play. right. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> you called me out, a theater. I, I guess I was thinking it was going to upstream from Opera, but you've got a Broadway house already. Well, yeah, I mean, probably late this year or even more likely 2025, because it takes a while to like bring everything together. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Wow, I love that so much. On this estate, we asked Esther about their discerning taste. So to close this conversation, here is a rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. David, are you ready? I'm intimidated, but ready. The best fruit. Blueberries. Why? There's something mysterious and elusive about blueberries. Like, are they even really blue? Like, when you look at them, you're looking kind of like the refraction through the beads of condensation on them. And their taste is elusive. Like, they're astringent. They're sweet. They have an interesting texture. They're mushy inside, but kind of, you know, tight outside. I, I kind of love everything about them. I love this, this, this choice. And unless you live in West Michigan, it's difficult to find a good blueberry. Well, in New England in the summer. I know. Late I'm, summer I'm, in New England. I'm oh. just... I'm just... Oh, you're busting my chops? I know. I'm just giving some West Michigan pride, but I think there are <laughs> good ones in Maine as well and, yeah. and New England. The worst vegetable. Oh, I, I will not libel vegetables. <laughs> Why not? Because, w1. because in America, we have enough of a problem selling people yeah. on vegetables. And my experience with vegetables is... I had terrible kale and terrible broccoli when I was a kid, but it's just because I was having it prepared the wrong way or was the wrong kind of kale. So it's it's basically a matter of, it's usually a matter of finding a way into how do I make this vegetable in a way that it'll be pleasurable. It's like adding some balsamic vinegar, maybe. Precisely. But also, we've had this topic come up. They've made, like Brussels sprouts used to taste really bad, and they've been genetically modified to taste better. It's not entirely that, though. Yeah. Brussels sprouts used to be overcooked to a fairly yeah, well. Yeah, true enough. And people have figured out not to do that. Your favorite NYC restaurant right now? Well, I already mentioned Il Posto Acanto, so I'll just pivot over to another Italian place, Via Carota, which is not a shocker. It's one of the most popular restaurants in New York. But bite for bite, Jody Williams and Rita Sodi make the best food in New York. Your favorite American fast food chain? I would say Shake Shack, just because... Danny Meyer figured out how to scale it. I didn't, it was too much of a pain to go to Shake Shack when it first opened because there was such a huge line. Yeah. But now that it's expanded, you can find them in airports. Oh my God, I'm so grateful. They're so, you can see, find them on the Jersey Turnpike. Yeah, exactly. Which is amazing, yeah. The best dessert? Pie. I, I love a fruit pie. I love a pecan pie. I love a key lime pie, mm. a maple walnut pie. Can I briefly tell a story about yeah. my love of pie? When I was a kid, we used to have to take these standardized tests in like first grade, like a proto-SAT. And there was one question which said, rank desserts in order of which is the best. And this shocked me even at age uh six or seven, because like they were asking for an objective answer to a subjective question. And the three things were ice cream, cake, and pie. And there was a right answer. No, 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 no. I, I'm not kidding. And and my first, I had pie cake ice cream, because those are my personal preferences if I had to rank desserts. I had the wrong answer. That's incredible. The, the correct answer, the quote-unquote correct answer was, was ice cream cake pie. You have to write about And, and I sound like a Gen Z person. Yeah. Saying that it was a different time isn't enough. I love it. <laughs> I was traumatized. Oh, man, Shots Taken, I love this. No, but can you research this actual test it was question? The Cal they called it like the California standardized test, but it was given nationally. You have to find this. Like an aptitude so test for, for first graders. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Of all time? Yeah. Woo! Um, I would say 
Cuisine Rapide by Pierre Fernet has got to be up there just because, as its title suggests, it it kind of took the idea of distilled by like Julia Child and Craig Claiborne and so forth and Jacques Pepin, but made them weeknight recipes. Man, I didn't ask you about Pierre because we wrote a great piece about Pierre's um, quick quick uh, cooking recipe book, his cookbook, and mm-hmm. and you had in the United States Arugula a story about how he and Jacques Pepin consulted. Correct? They, they were consultants? Oh, for Howard Johnson's. For Howard Johnson's, which yes. is like a huge chain restaurant. Howard Johnson's was, um, at the time, like it was talk about rest stops, like Shake Shack. Yeah. It was at almost every rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike, Turnpike and the New York Thruway. And the actual founder, Howard Johnson, was a regular at um, Le Pavillon, yeah. which is the fancy French restaurant in New York where these guys got their starts. And when Le Pavillon, they both fell out. Pepin and Fernet with uh, Henri Soulet, who is the temperamental owner of Le Pavillon. Howard Johnson hired them to be consultants on how can we like improve the quality of the Howard Johnson's product. And so the, the chicken pot pies suddenly got a lot better. Talk about ahead of your time, <clears throat> hiring fine dining chefs to consult. But that's why it didn't work, because it was too ahead of its time. And I think the cost was too high yeah. to, to make it sustainable. Is Frenet somebody that we still just don't talk about enough? Well, I think it's partly a matter of he was of a time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was lucky to kind of get the, the 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 end of his career and like a generation older than me got the start of his career. And that's just, just how life rolls sometimes yeah. is that some people live on forever like Julia Child and some people are, are semi forgotten. But I, I, I will give a shout out to him because he, he was great. Oh, man. Uh, favorite recent cookbook discovery? I would say Yawande Komolafe's my everyday Lagos. And before you stop me, every Nigerian I know says Lagos and not Lagos, but my everyday Lagos Sounds is good. also acceptable if you're, if you're ordering this book from a store. She, you know, she, she writes for the Times yeah. along with um, you know, like Melissa Clark. Yeah. And, and her recipes are just so great in the everyday paper, but the cookbook focuses on her, her Nigerian heritage. And it's just like another, for me, it's just another thing that I can add to my toolbox of approaches like jollof rice, you know, just knowing how to make that. And, and I don't necessarily have to apply it to a full on Nigerian dinner, but I can use that, you know, as a compliment to something else I make. Great call. We've had a, we had a great episode with Yolande on, uh, on this show and, and it's, it is a really terrific book. It is one of the best of the year. Great call. A couple more. Your favorite city to visit outside America for the food? Um, I don't really, this isn't quite a city. I'm going to say Jamaica, which is a small country. and But you can't say Kingston because it's really the whole of Jamaica. I really have grown to love West Indian food. And Jamaica is one of those places where if you go eat the local food because it's never as good elsewhere as it actually is in Jamaica. I'm talking about the jerk chicken where they're making fresh over an all-spice wood fire that's been burning for 300 years. Um, you know, they yeah. just keep stoking it. So the, the depth of flavor there and then like the, the meat patties and, and just the, the, the mangoes, the fruits and vegetables, the Escovitch fish preparation, the, 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 um, the, the pepper, the hot peppers. I just love the freshness of, of the flavors. And like I said earlier, Hartford's the only place I've experienced that even begins to approximate how good the food is in Jamaica. Back to Jamaica. How do you visit Jamaica? What's your way of... You fly an airplane there yeah, and you buddy. land in um, either Montego Bay or Kingston. Uh, no, honestly, I had a really good initial exposure to Jamaica, which is there's a place called Treasure Beach, which is southwest Jamaica. It's St. Elizabeth Parish, which is way less touristed and less enclosed. Like the, you're mm-hmm. you, you're in the communities as opposed to if on the northern coast of Jamaica, you're sort of in a fortress, a tourist fortress. And the great thing about Treasure Beach is that you're among the population. You can kind of casually walk around and discover things which is Love my it. preferred way of doing it. Great tip. I appreciate that. A couple more. A cuisine you would like to learn more about? Indian cuisine. Um, I'm from central New Jersey, and when I was a kid, there was a, just beginning this wave of Punjabi immigration into um, the towns near me. I was in a town called Highland Park, and Edison and Woodbridge, neighboring towns, got really, really huge Indian populations really fast. So I liked Indian food from the outset, but what I've come to realize as an adult is that I was only having Punjabi food. And again, it's like I was saying about Italy. Every region of India has its own distinct cuisine. And 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 like my son spent an internship at the Taj Palace in Mumbai. Wow. And he was telling me about the food there, which is completely different from 
Punjab food. And then there's, you know, Rajasthani food, there's yeah. Chennai food, which is more seafood based and whatever. There, there's just so much variety. And I, 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 I know I'll only ever scratch the surface, yeah. but I'm, I'm into that. It's a great call. Last yeah. one, your favorite sandwich. Open face tuna melt. Is there a New York City destination to, to acquire, order, and eat the sandwich? Well, there used to, my favorite one was a university diner on 12th and university, university. place. It's now a sweet green FU gentrification. <laughs> you remember um, I'm very I never bit, went there. I, I, I'm very bitter, but you know, Eisenberg Sandwich Shop had a really good one too. And the guys who have taken it over, now it's called S&P Lunch. They do a very faithful version I of the that. Eisenberg tuna melt. Yeah, the, the S&P Lunch guys are are really operating at the highest level. I appreciate what they're doing. I mean, it's a little groovy now, which is problematic. <laughs> not not the food or the the employees, it's the the, the client base. Yeah. I liked it when I was the youngest person there. Yeah. Now I'm the oldest person there when I go. I know. I loved going to Eisenberg's. The food never really hit the mark, but it was such a beautiful experience. It actually did hit the mark for me. For you, you yeah. had a good experience yeah. there. Um, David Camp, what a pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. And Matt, I am so grateful you had me here. Hey, Eliza, what is up? Not much, Matt. How are you doing? I'm great. We're here with three things. What's your first thing? My first thing is that I tried this pizza pop-up wizard hat pizza for the first time. Have you tried it? (laughs) Why are you laughing? Wizard in the name of a pizzeria. That is like, how is that not marijuana related? Yeah, yeah, it's it's not. I'm going to say right now. No, no, I'm just being like a jerk and judging by its name. I think it's a great name, but... It's I've never heard name. of it. It's a funny name. I feel like there are a couple of restaurants in the city. Like my favorite Thai takeout place is called Nudes and Chill. And every time I recommend it to somebody, I'm like, please like, just stay with me on this. It used to be the people that did Look by Plant Love House, if you ever went to that place in Prospect Heights. I love that place. I, I'm sad about that place leaving, and I thought that name was intense. Yeah, I liked that name. So they do—this is not even my first thing. They do Nudes and Chills, the exact same food. It's really good, but the name just seems like it's like a meme restaurant, you know? So oh, yeah. whenever I tell people about it, I'm like, stay with me. So Wizard Hat Pizza, Stay With Me, is a pop-up in Flatbush that this guy Josiah Bartlett is doing. Um and my girlfriend Shirley was filming a video there, so I got to eat all the leftovers, but they were not refrigerated. They were like, I think, pretty intact to the experience of eating it there, and they were really good. And I had like the sourdough pizza. I had like their take on a Hawaiian pizza, which had thin, crispy speck and pineapple on it instead of like big chunks of ham. Oh man, really good. What's the what's the what's like the dough style? What are we are we talking like classic New York style? It's a sourdough style, and yeah. I would say that the slices are a little smaller and thinner than what I would say is like a very classic New York style. It almost reminds me of like the pizza you could get in LA. I yeah. would say um, the Ooh. dough is like very bubbly and active, and I also really liked the spicy pepperoni pizza with hot peppers on it and like a little bit of honey it just was a very like pleasing sad yeah. pie speaking of pizza pop-ups have you been hearing about chrissy's at all i have heard about chrissy's which is in the old superiority burger place right it was or it is going to be there eventually but there's been permitting delays so he's been popping up at superiority burger oh. proper the one on avenue a like for late night pop-ups like you know some real hype shit. It, it seems like a good pie. Yeah, I'll have to go try it and compare. There's a lot of pizza happening in the city. Yeah, and what about Shy's? What do you think about Shy's? Shy's Burgers? Yeah, the, not have, pizza, of course. <laughs> I have never managed to eat a Shy's Burger because every time I've been somewhere where it's happening, the line has been so long that I just... Have, I've been too hungry, but I will say that the last time I was trying to eat a Shy's burger, I did happen to be in the same space as FK Twigs because it was just on oh. the street in like Dime Square. And she apparently, I don't think she was at the pop up, but she was around the area. Yeah. So lots of hype Good around exciting. that. Good exciting. Shy Guy, uh, Shy Guy, Shy's Guy. We were we were DMing about doing a doing a podcast. We yeah, were, he's, we were, a, he's a cool guy. I was seems at a, cool. I was at a Cyclones game with him over the summer. Oh, randomly. What is that gentleman's name? Shy. But like his name is Shy, just Shy. Oh, I mean Clayton cut this because I don't know what his proper name is. I just he was at my friend's birthday party. <laughs> okay, no, you don't have to cut that. We, we we're being honest. Like I I, I feel like uh, I want to know you, Shy. So hit me up again if you're listening to this, and we'll talk about it. Okay, yeah, that's I, a lot of pop up talk. It's a lot of pop. You know me, I'm always at the pop ups. What's your first thing? My first thing is not a pop up, but it is a piece of content that I just consumed right before coming down to record this. It is truly one of my favorite articles of the year. It's written by Priya Krishna. It is a massive profile in the New York Times food section on hand hospitality. 
it is a great story of a story, a story that I've personally been pursuing for years and have never actually done what Priya did, which is speak with the founder of Hand Hospitality. Are you familiar with Hand? No, I'm racking my brain because I feel like maybe I would know if I had an example. No, but it's cool. Let me let me break tell it down me, a little yeah. bit. Hand Hospitality Group has been operating in New York City for I'm gonna my my gut is like it's about eight years. They're behind some of uh, the city's most prominent and exciting Korean American restaurants and Korean restaurants imports. I've spoken about some of them on the show, so I don't need to go into detail, including Ariari, Hojukban, her name is Han, mm. Auto Mix, Auto Boy. Uh, we're talking about Lise. Yes. There's 15 of them in total in New York. Low key, low key, low key operators. They, they're very media shy. And I thought Priya did such a nice job. Um, in capturing uh, and just reporting on their what their what their impetus is, what their mission is, and how they are operating these restaurants with kind of the opposite approach to most operators, which is they avoid all press. They're letting the restaurants speak for themselves. They don't really have chefs. I mean, Auto Mix and Auto Boy and Soul Salon or JP and Elian, they're big names, but most of their operators are pretty anonymous, and they like it that way. Just love these restaurants. So I'm going to link to that article in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. I obviously love Priya's writing. And I will say just to defend myself as somebody who works in food media but didn't know the name of this group off the top of my yeah. head, I think it speaks to the fact that they are operating in this way, that all of the restaurants are ringing bells. But the yeah. fact that they're all connected is somewhat of a surprise. Oh, it's cool that you say that. It's like your your own point of view is, is I, I value it. And I think it, it says a lot about uh, you're plugged into a lot of things, uh, including pop-ups. And, uh, <laughs> and the fact that you don't know about it is kind of this, I think, kind of a mini scoop or mini major scoop by Priya. Uh, congrats on that scoop, Priya. I saw you at an event and we talked about this piece. Great work there. What's your next thing? My next thing, so I like pop-ups. I like kombucha, obviously. We talked about, you're <laughs> we right. talked about this. And I tried a really <laughs> cool new kombucha for the first time I love it. over the weekend. I was at Dear Friend, which is a really cool cafe, wine bar, bookshop kind of hybrid in Bed-Stuy on Tompkins. And I tried a new kind of kombucha from Unified Ferments, which is a brewer here mm. in the city that does a lot of work with single origin tea and things like that. It's called... Nilgiri Kunur, and it's one of their experimental blends. So I'm not sure how many places have it available right now. I think if you go to their kind of tap list in the city, it would probably be the easiest way to find it. It's made from a black tea that's produced by this women-led team in the Nilgiri Mountains in southern India. And Unified Ferments on the bottle say things like coriander and candied orange peel. But I took a sip and I said, Arnold Palmer. Oh, wow. It really tastes exactly like an Arnold Palmer to me in a fun way. Such a great compliment. So like there's a little bit of sweetness, but not too much. It is, it, it, in the glass, it's very opaque and cloudy and looks like it would be kind of a heavy drink, I would say. But then when you sip it, it has a lot of this kind of citrusy flavor with that black tea. And I think that's something I really like about kombucha brands when they use single origin teas and really kind of let that speak because kombucha is fermented tea, but so many brands are just throwing in a lot of juice. So yeah. I would definitely recommend, in general, I like Unified Ferments, and I think this one is pretty cool. Love, to, love that tip. And I think when we talk about NA, we, we sometimes do, except for you, forget about kombucha as like a category that is exciting. And it's, it's tea adjacent, of course. Unified Ferments does their kombucha in wine bottles, um, and they have beautiful labels. And I actually do bring bottles to my friends who don't drink uh, when I'm going to a dinner party or something, just because it does feel kind of celebratory and it tastes a lot like what I would say a natural wine could taste like. But without the booze. I mean, without the booze. I, I, I hope I'm going to – you wrote that great NA piece, the, the, the beverage piece last year. Let's do the kombucha piece. Oh, my God. I would love to do the kombucha piece. I feel like every couple of years, like someone lets me write a kombucha yeah. story. Well, but there's no allowing. You run taste with me, so let's yeah, do it together. Let's do it. There's cool things happening. I love it. What's your next thing? I want to call out a book that is being published in March um, that we're publishing here, and we're going to have the author on the show. It's called Vegan Mob, Vegan Barbecue and Soul Food, written by Taria Gordon with Korsha Wilson. I saw Korsha last week, and we talked about this book. It's really cool. Are you familiar with Vegan Mob? It's a Bay Area a food truck and restaurant group. I think I've seen this on Instagram, but I love Korsha's work also. So it seems like a cool collab. It's really cool that she, you know, Korsha did a terrific job working in concert with this restaurant group. And what they're doing is vegan Calmex. And what I like about the book is it's very cookable. Mm. Um, I would say they lean into the Impossible Burger, um, f fake uh, chicken patty 
you know, ground beef realm, which I think is great. I think when we're talking about cooking plant-based. Um, there's two ways to go. You could say everything from scratch or you could say using some of these products. And I'm not going to judge either, but I think for me... For, Personally, I would cook more from this book, and the recipes are just off the page, jumping out. And you know, they're doing, um, I would say, like a loaded nacho, uh, buffalo chicken fried mushrooms, mm. and even a vegan gumbo. And I just like love the way this book is put together. Of course, I look at the cover and in interiors. I'm like, man, this these photos are are amazing. I'm like, who's the photographer? And of course, it's Ed Anderson. <laughs> who shot Food IQ and I know well, and he just is able to make many things look absolutely delicious. Vegan Mob is the name of the cookbook. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that episode. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're going to record it remotely, or maybe maybe they'll come to New York. Well, well, stay tuned. It'll be coming out this spring slash summer. What is your last one? My last one is not food related, but I'm just really liking the new TV show, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and I want to talk about it. <laughs> Let's talk about it. I feel like I've heard a little bit about it. There's been a little bit of a vacuum, though, with the PR. I don't know. Like, is it? Is it? It's out now, right? Obviously, you're watching it. It's out now. I've seen a couple episodes. You haven't seen it yet? No, I want to. I would just say um, the casting is really fun. I think Donald Glover has amazing chemistry with Maya Erskine, who you maybe know from the show Pen15. Did you oh, ever see that? Every episode twice. Okay. Just, I'm like, was so sad they killed that. It was like one season short. I honestly could only watch one episode of that show because it made me so uncomfortable. Because if you haven't, if you're listening, you haven't watched the show, it's a comedy where these two grown women are playing their like 12 to 14 year old selves, probably, but everyone else is an actual teenager. It's masterful. And, and this is like kind of in your age range a little bit zone wise. Uh, like the time that they are yeah. in. Yeah. But it's just, it's so uncomfortable comedy and it's really awkward and I just can't really get, it makes me uncomfortable to watch, but it's really cool to see Maya go from doing that to playing like essentially a cool-blooded killer spy who's been set up with Donald Glover, which if you watched the Mr. and Mrs. Smith movie, this is kind of in that same ecosystem, but different. But I think it's really cool. And it seems like a lot of the Atlanta crew are yeah. working on this show, um, which is just so evident, like even before you get to the credits in terms of the writing is so tight and super fun. And I would just recommend it to everybody if they need something to watch. I love the the pick and, and the fact that Atlanta crew is working on it. I mean, the, the filmmaking in it, this series Atlanta is, is is just on a different level. I think it, some of it was quite challenging, which I think is makes great television. I'm sure we'll go down that route with this. I just think it's just it's a highly inventive a plot structure in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. And also the look ahead at Mr. and Mrs. Smith has some of the craziest um, cameos and just like actors in it, like um, Sarah Paulson, Michaela Cole, Paul Dano, etc. It just seems like a really fun show. I love that. It's like Amazon can just like add a zero to every paycheck and just like get people of all types to, to work on their shows. Yeah. I and, love that. And also I think just like Donald Glover as a showrunner, people I think are rightly wanting to work with oh, him yes. on it. And I would imagine that he produced this with the intention of starring in it. And I think it was a really smart role for him also because he's just kind of killing it. And the clothing is also really fun as a side note. It was originally going to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge as the opposite, and that did never pan out. So this is a new casting. Yeah, I think it's a cool casting. Yeah. I do love Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. What's your last thing? My last thing is this. We're recording this on February 6th. February 7th marks the eighth birthday of Taste. Oh, happy we're, birthday. Yeah, we're eight years We're eight. We're eight years old, which is a great age. Wow, should we throw like an eighth, an eight-year-old birthday party that's like bowling and pizza? I mean, or go to the zoo. Like, I mean, I feel like I'm thinking, yeah, bowling, pizza, going to the zoo. I mean, it's definitely, you're starting to get up there where you're like thinking about, you know, adulthood a little bit in your brain as an eight-year-old. Yeah, but your concept of adulthood is like not what real adulthood is. Oh, of course, <laughs> well, well said. I mean, it's like yeah, it's like it's pizza for breakfast. A, it's more like I, what I what do you want to be is not like astronaut anymore. It's like you know, you, I'm going to be a helper. You know, it's like you're a little more thinking about your future at eight. Yeah. What did you want to be when you were eight? When I was eight, I think I wanted to work for the Chicago Cubs. Well, I mean. Slash live across the street from Wrigley Field. That's the dream. Slash like just watch baseball games from the rooftops all yeah. day. That I mean, for me at eight, the big city was Chicago. I'd I didn't know what New York was. It was not on my radar. I, I, it was it was an, a general idea. And of course, I hadn't been to California. I, it was like literally the big city was Chicago. So I wanted to move to the big city at eight. That's cute. How about you? What did you want to be at eight? I'm trying to think about this. I, I loved to play make-believe and pretend. So I think I maybe was in an actress era. Oh, yeah. 
even though I don't think I actually wanted to do that, I think it was just for fun. But I do remember I really wanted to live in San Francisco because I grew up in LA and my mom's family is from the Bay Area. And that would be like the big city we would get to go to that wasn't LA, right? Because I think as an eight, even as an eight-year-old, I was like, well, I can't live at home as an adult. That no. would be crazy. <laughs> Which my parents are listening to this and they're like, yes, you can live in LA as an adult if you want. Oh, I love it. Um, but yeah. Oh. So yeah, eight years. It's amazing. We launched the we had a launch party at, at Joy Luck Palace on uh, February seventh, twenty seventeen, and uh, it's been a great run. And Eliza, it's we we've been working together on Taste for a couple years now. Um, shout out to Anna Hiesel, Tatiana Batista, Talia Bayoki, some of my old colleagues. But getting to eight eight feels like a moment. It's not like a, a round number, but food media and media in general is um, is certainly not healthy. <laughs> No. Going through a lot of changes. Um, but I have to say, I have to really acknowledge the support that Taste receives from Crown Publishing Group and, and the folks here. And I really, uh, this is truly a dream job. Every day I come here to work, I, I love meeting authors, talking about cookbooks, talking about food, cooking, culture. And it's just such an amazing thing that we're eight years old. Yeah, it's so fun to be a part of it. And I do think we should do our, our eight-year-old birthday celebration somewhere. I mean, I feel like it's got to be pizza it's gotta be milkshakes mm-hmm. like it's like it's like too big like the sundays need to be like too big for an eight-year-old like serendipity that's where we have to go. go to serendipity and then we can like barf at the end of it <laughs> okay sounds good sounds good it's a deal eliza <laughs> great catching up with you you too this is taste is hosted by eliza abarbanel and me matt rodbar the show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 